if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today we've got John and McLean back again. John is a regular guest, always teaching us about horse knowledge, horse behaviour, and a um, bit of a trainer extraordinaire. Today we're going to be talking about 10 must-known strategies when teaching horses who rush their jumps. How are you today, Jonna? Oh, I'm very well, Glennis. How are you coping yeah. with, the, with the whole change of circumstance since we last spoke? Oh, bit of the, bit of the isolation. It's funny because there's lots of things that we can't do, but because we've got online, we can do them. You know, we've got a, a working party meeting on Monday, you know, to do with the new curriculum, but we can't all go, so it ends up being a, you know, a bit of a, a webinar or a online thing. You know, I just think we're lucky that we live in an age where there is so much technology that we can use. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I was only saying that the other day that how fortunate are we that we have that technology in place, whereas if it had been 20 years ago, yep. we wouldn't have been able to do any of this. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yep. All right. Look, before we get going, I just need to remind everyone about International Horse College and uh, the podcast brought to us, well, put to you by International Horse College. And the mission of International Horse College is to improve the welfare of horses around the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers. Have a look at the wide variety of horse courses now at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation number 31352. Now, John, are these horses that rush their jumps? It's not just a horse problem, is it? It can be a rider problem. Absolutely, Glennis. Remember in our conversation we talked about really making sure that the two factors that affect a rider's nervousness in a particular situation, one is really their physical capability to carry out the task, yep. and the second one is the mental or the knowledge that a person has in their mind that gives them the tools to be able to carry out the physical task. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the line that's we talked about. For the horse, that's exactly right. It is more than likely caused by fear, and can the fear be caused by the rider? And there's no doubt that it can be because it doesn't take much to make a horse scared and mm. it doesn't take much to make a person scared, as we've all seen recently anyway. Yeah. Fear is, is, a, is something that's beneath the surface just waiting to burst out, and we have to really ensure that we keep the whole approach and execution of what we're doing with horse training as clear as possible, as consistent as possible in the light of contextual change. So that's not always an easy task, and it means that we always have to be thinking ahead and a lot of coaches I've heard say, you know, it's it's good to have a plan because any plan is better than no plan, which is absolutely right. But mm. from a horse training point of view, you often have to be three or four steps ahead. So that's right, it can be caused by the rider, but if allowed to persist, it can also happen with horses. And the interesting thing about it is that when you see horses free jump, you don't actually see many Horses free jump to established free jumpers. You don't actually see them making the mistake of um, horses that are really scared, i.e., refusing, running out, running really fast at the jumps, etc. Now, if it's carefully managed, it will it will stay um, fairly normal and um, 
and unpredictable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just to clear something up too, a horse that rushes its jumps doesn't do it because it loves jumping? No, well, this is right, exactly, and we like to think that. I mean, I had that said to me many, many times that early on in my riding life when I was mixing equestrian with racing, I actually went into jump racing for a while, and much to my parents' horror, in fact, I didn't actually tell them, but they eventually found out. <laughs> um, of course, of course, they did. They heard it on the radio and saw it on the TV. But, look, um, it was all about really making sure that you've got a horse that's really keen, and a horse that's really keen is a horse that actually, you know, all, it takes you to the jump all by itself. And, look, in stable chasing, it's a little bit different because you do have other horses with you, and so the infectious state of flight is a lot more a lot more possible because the horses around you, of course. But we also were, were told to believe that, you know, a horse loves jumping when um, it draws to the fence or takes you to the fence. So, you know, that, that's sort of got a little bit of rushing written on it potentially. And in a lot of cases, that is what you see is the horses, when they're scared, run towards the fence. So they can't, they don't really love the jumping. They're just trying to get the jump out of the way so the pain is uh, over a less t- uh, a smaller time frame. Okay, okay. Now, you've got down here that you start off over poles on the ground. So, you know, someone rings you up and says, John, I've got a horse that rushes its jumps. I need to get some coaching. I need yep. a lesson and poles on the ground. So what are you checking when you teach them over the poles on the ground? Well, I'm checking to find out whether the report that I've got from the rider yep. is exactly the same report that I'm getting from the horse because I've got two sources of information here and I have to draw upon every possible source that I can because, you know, we want to try and execute this accurately, safely and ethically. So what I'm trying to do there is if I put a pole on the ground, does the horse automatically rush? And if the answer is no, well, that's great. Then I'll put two wings beside the pole. If it still doesn't rush, that's good. That means that I can go to the next stage and start to make the poles a little um, and get them off the ground as in a cross rail fence or a horizontal rail. And generally speaking, most of the horses are pretty darn good. The riders have done a lot of work, presented me with a horse that's pretty solid over poles, trial poles, canter poles, etc. And uh, it's really only when we start to have a fence where the horse can't step it, but it actually has to jump it. And that usually occurs around about 30 centimetres plus. Mm-hmm. A horse can trot a 30 centimetre cross rail, but once that becomes 35 to 45 centimetre, either be a cross rail or be a horizontal fence, the horse has to do some sort of jump. And it's actually then when we go from trot to canter, then the horse starts to accelerate. So usually the horses that I am presented with don't rush at trot, but they only rush at canter. Okay, okay. Yes, and, and the cues, you know, you want to check the rider cues the horse. What sort of cues are we looking for to make sure the rider's cueing the horse properly, you know, timely, appropriate? But what are we, what are we actually looking for as a coach? As a coach, we're really looking to make sure that every um, cue that the, that the rider gives for number one is that we're not giving simultaneously opposite cues. In other words, leg and hand at the same time. So it's not uh, being okay. Yes, yes. And, and that's easy to do because fear makes us do silly things, and mm-hmm. um, we, we're, we've all we've all been in that position. Um, and makes us do things that sometimes we don't know. So I'm observing the rider to see what they're doing. And because we talked about before about headsets, the beauty about headsets 
is that I can pretty much ask the rider immediately after the fence in a really nice, quiet, calm tone, um, what signals did you give and in what order did you give them for the horse to be able to do the jump? Or maybe he didn't give any cues. But, you know, I just want you to tell me, can you remember what he did? Sometimes they can't. So that's the first step is find out what the rider did to the horse. Yep. The second one is, did the horse listen to the rider? Mm. And the third one is, did the rider reward the horse by releasing the pressure of the cue? So whether it be a rain cue or a leg cue? Yep. And then the last one, probably the most important one, is, or I shouldn't say important, they're all important, but uh, another one that is also has to be carefully considered, were the signals given by the rider at the appropriate times in relation to the fence? That's the key part, because why would you use the reins a stride out from the fence? Okay, There's no, okay. No point. Yep, yep, yep. Now... Do we permit the horse and rider combination to make mistakes, you know, thinking about tempo, line, self-carriage? And if we did permit them to make mistakes, what's the benefit? Okay. It's a really good point, and it's not always easy to answer when we're not looking at a particular situation or a particular example. Mm -hmm. However, let's say in a particular example that a horse is uh, rushing into the fence and the rider uses the reins at an inappropriate time, which I would deem to be the last three strides because we should have already set up the tempo, the stride length and the line by that point and allow the horse to be able to jump over the fence, then we really would just want to make sure that the rider is doing everything that they possibly can to facilitate the horse's jump, not impede it. So you're really looking for inappropriate reactions to the horse and rider, just any basic task to yeah. to help understand what needs to be done. Yeah. And it's that lesson, isn't it, and in the future? It, it, yeah. it is. Where, where we are going with this is if the rider is doing all the appropriate things, mm. and, and as we said, you know, probably the most important thing that I've ever talked about um, in our conversations is the art of being able to develop and pursue the self-carriage state. That, to me, is the holy grail. That's the holy grail of my safety. That's the okay. holy grail of my welfare. It's it's everything. And really, getting back to the definition of it, the horse is doing everything you've asked it to do, and it continues to do it without having to be re-signaled or re-cued. Yep, yep, okay. So, is that if the self-carriage state is in place, then what we're really doing is allowing or permitting the horse to be able to change its line, change its tempo, change its jump style appropriately or inappropriately, um, get to its takeoff point, mm-hmm. and also for the riders to do the same. So it means that when we do that, then we're permitting the horse to be able to make the error so then we can see that it was the error on behalf of the horse. It wasn't necessarily the error of the rider. It was the horse not being able to maintain self-carriage to the base of the fence. And number two, probably the other important part is the rider um, then has proven to me as a coach that even when things go wrong, they are capable of not interfering because we just can't help ourselves sometimes. We just have to get in there and do something. When really it's best to listen, and I think you and I may have talked about this before, that, for example, if you're driving a car and it's on a wet road and you're on a corner and you think you saw a kangaroo, the worst thing you can do is just hit the hit their brakes as hard yes. as you can. Mm. That would be an inappropriate reaction cause an accident. What you're best to do is 
Judge the conditions, wait as long as you possibly can, and then apply appropriate pressure that will have some effect upon the car that will be positive, not negative. And riding is exactly the same, but it's a slippery ride around the corner pretty much the whole time. That's what makes riding difficult. So um, when we talk about allowing force to make the error, I'm also allowing the rider to make the error as well. So. In a, in a lot of ways, I'm testing the self-carriage state of the rider's capability and the horse's capability so I can see that it went wrong. Now, I'm sorry about the long-winded answer here because it's fairly, it's a little complex, but what I'm really trying to do here is now the opportunity for me to be able to train my horse is because he can then train himself by getting too close and hitting the rail and thinking next time, Wow, I better not go this fast and take off from there because that hurt my hurt my lock or my paston mm-hmm. or, or coronet band or whatever part of the horse's leg he hit the rail. So he will do something we call that trial and error learning. You know, you allow the error to occur so then it doesn't continue anymore and that is what creates learning. And of course people are exactly the same. So I've just taken this Really, all I've done is just taken this to a newer level and allowed it to be exposed. When you know, and look, myself and Andrew and then you have discussed it many times that you know, error-free training is a very important part of, of horse training with what we do with ESI. I understand that, but also, error, um, uh, allowing small errors to occur are important to be able to assess what the problem is, nonetheless. So we don't have to be denied about this. You know, we have all these tools, and depending on what the task is as to what tool we use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. You said something earlier about the rider doing as little as possible because I know some people when they first start jumping, they just want to throw themselves over. They jump earlier than the horse, get in front of the movement, really exaggerate and get the feeling of all the jump instead of just sitting there in a good position and allowing the horse to jump. So something like that, is that going to teach a horse to rush their jumps if they get in front of the movement? Absolutely, Glenn. It's exactly the same. I didn't cover that in my notes to you, and I haven't covered it in my notes here because it's a big topic, but you're absolutely right. Overriding the fence is the worst, one of the worst things you can do for a starter. It puts extra weight on the forehand. The second thing does is, especially for an off-the-track horse, leaning forward means go faster. Yep. So the idea is to try and stay as imbalanced as you can with the centre of gravity that you know is going to go slightly up and slightly forward, and that is all your upper body. And we've all been told you know, you have to you have to fold with your horse, and we're only jumping a thirty centimetre jump, and yet our upper body is now 
probably 90 degrees or almost 90 degrees to our hips, and, and that, that's completely overriding a fence. And, of course, upper body movement and rein movement is probably going to scare a young horse a little bit. So the idea is to keep you still and as quiet as you can, but mm-hmm. facilitate the horse's jumping okay. potential. Okay. And what about if the riders had, you know, I'm thinking about trying to understand the rider's fear. You know, if the riders had past experience with jumping that may have been on a different horse, you know, what the horses used to do, what any, any near misses or accidents, and what, you know, as a coach, what sort of things are you looking for so that you can understand the rider's fear with the past experiences? Yes, mm. that's right. And that, that's, that's probably step one, you know, where I've introduced myself, she's introduced herself, I've met the horse, and then the next question is, what would you like to get out of this lesson? And uh, what issues have you had in the past with jumping? Um, is it from this horse or was this horse's um, reaction cumulative compared to another horse or is this horse helping you compared to another horse? And what were your experiences that you think that made you feel like that? So really asking the right, uh, where, what, what was the original source of this and how old was it? You know, the, did the fear stem from when you were 10 years old when you fell off for the first jump and uh-huh. um, you've now been teaching the concrete fear that you'd like to do it. So it depends on how embedded that fear is and how long it's been embedded for. And a lot of riders have this. A lot of riders have this. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, very, very capable riders on the flat say that the reason that they like jumping is because they had a they had a bad experience. Like that, a lot of people you would have met thousands of them like me that say they don't ride horses because their first experience was a bad one. Oh, definitely. Exactly. Yep. Happens with jumping, and it happens with cross country. You know, if your first ten or fifteen or twenty rides with a horse had a really big. Um, uh, missing all of that and it caused some sort of injury or anxiety or or from your body and mentally as well, then it will go, it's going to carry baggage. It has to until you resolve it and you address it if you wish to. You don't have to, but mm-hmm. I always encourage people to chip around the edges of it a little bit in a, in a really safe way. Just doing exercises that I know that the horse is comfortable with and, and often I'll just jump on the horse's foot to climb. I'll say, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll ride your horse and I'll try and ride your horse is exactly how I want you to ride it mm-hmm. and I'll overdo that so you can see clearly what I'm doing and you're mic'd up to me so you'll be able to ask questions as I go. And so I can demonstrate that for you and say, look, if you do this, this is what you'll do. And then I'll also demonstrate for them that if I actually do the wrong thing, what will happen as well. And that, that could be a positive, that could be a negative, but they need to see both sides of the coin so that they can see that the worst-case scenario is this, but the best-case scenario looks like that. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, because you've talked about doing the wrong thing. So I suppose the the, yeah. the rider's fear, the horse's fear is based on that they don't know what to do when, you know, it's inappropriate or something like that, you know, not trained, not automatic. Exactly. And look, you know, we all take this for granted, Glenn, it's this um, automatic stuff. And the only reason it's automatic is because we've trained it, uh, we've done it so many times. Like we get into a car, first thing we do is put our seatbelt on, um, et cetera, and we've learned to do that. But some of us have actually had to learn to put seatbelts on. I had to learn to put seatbelts on. I grew up in a place where seatbelts were not even in a vehicle most of the time. So I had to actually learn to do that. And now I find that it's automatic. I don't think about it. And it's the same with training, that you end up being able to uh, rely on your own training, your own reflexes so well that you actually afford to have your brain 
somewhere else. In other words, wondering, oh, I wonder what... I wonder what uh, and bend I've got for this jump over here because I'd like him to land on the left leg, for example. Whereas if you were a bit worried, you would not be thinking about Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about this whole horses being scared. So the horses being scared, and I yeah. know that we're going to cover the refusing and the running out the next chat. You know, this one's just more about the rushing. Yeah. And, you yep. know, we talked about riders pulling on the reins in front of the jump, then expecting the horse to jump and getting the horse scared. So what starts it off? Does the horse start to go a bit fast and the rider pulls on the reins or the rider starts to pull on the reins and the horse runs through the aids? How does that, you know, the whole, it, it sort of seems to be a bit of a vicious circle there? Well, it is exactly a vicious circle, and I think it can happen in all manner of ways. The rider might think the horse is going faster, but it's not, mm-hmm. or the horse may be going faster and the rider pulls the reins. But either way, what is happening is the riders are really making sure that their own safety is guaranteed by pulling the reins, when in fact pulling the reins really close to the fence um, diminishes your safety level. It doesn't increase it. So the idea is to have uh, a trained effective state in your horse. In other words, when you pull the reins, you get a reaction from the legs straight away that then should cause you to release the pressure straight away. And that is what we call a half hop when we do that inside a... Uh, uh, let's say, for example, a, a tempo, and we would like the tempo to change. We would like it to decrease a little, or we would like to shorten the stride. We won't get into the detail of that, but shortening the stride doesn't necessarily change the tempo. It just shortens the stride. But either way, we'd like to have an effect on the horse's canter or trot, but we'll talk about the canter because that's the most common place that most people jump in. And if we apply the reins, then you might come around the corner. And I nearly always get people encourage their horses to push them around the corner with their legs, so slightly increase the tempo to come around the corner. And yep. as they come around the corner, then just ask them to lift the horse's pole. Don't worry about slowing it, but I want your horse's pole to come up an inch or two. And when it's come up an inch or two, straight back onto your normal level of contact and then nurse that canter and that hand all the way to the base. And then all you have to do is put your uh, little calf squeeze with your leg and say, now, the jump. So they're pretty three free, easy things to remember uh, for people to be able to remember if they're a bit nervous. I'll keep yep. it as simple as I can. But what I'm really trying to do is address the nervous horse. So then, oh, yes, I get pushed around the corner. Then I do a little steady on the and I'm going into a little oxa. And then I just nurse the canter all the way to the base. And then I close my leg at the bus and say, now, please pop over the jump. And then I have to hold and release the reins and follow the horse's extended profile over the fence. Okay, good. That, that's absolutely the ideal. What about, um, you know, I know the leg cue is so important. So I know that, you know, in those last few strides, the excessive use of the reins is going to get you in trouble, confuse your horse. The leg cue, what's so yeah. important about the leg cue? It's an interesting one, Glennis. I was hoping you'd ask me about that because um, – I can tell, and maybe because I've done that many lessons, jumping lessons now, I can tell when a rider rides into the fence if they don't give the horse a leg cue because the jump is really spasmodic and fast and the technique of the horse tucking its legs and being able to use its profile to jump through the arc or the bascule of the jump is actually really messy. And I can see it in an instant. And, you know, my clients are that good, or my, my clients are, you know, we're all honest with one another. We say it as it is and we all have a laugh. We all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. And so, now, 
Would I be wrong in suggesting that I think at the base of that fence you didn't use your leg, but at the next one you did? And they said, nearly every time I've nailed it, and they said, uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. How can you tell that? And I said, it's, it's not you. I can actually tell by the horse. So the horse almost gets a little bit lost because he's looking for the cue and he waits just that microsecond. Uh, okay. yeah. And there's no cue, so then he's going to look after himself, so there's a panic. And what we're trying to do here is keep everything known. So from a horse's point of view, you know, the two most important criteria is that everything is predictable and it's also escapable. And predictability means we've got to do it consistently and escapable means we remove it at the right time. So that's the answer to the question. Okay, okay. So just sort of going back, because I know that you talked about allowing the horse and rider to make the mistakes at the very basic level. Okay, you've got to see the horse and the rider just, you want to see what their natural tendencies are at an obstacle to see what's lacking. You know, the line, the tempo, the cue, the usage, everything. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Yep. And, you know, like you just said with the legs, you've got to be vigilant to see everything, not just, you know, like, and I know that, you know, you talked about the rein and leg at the same time is going to confuse the horse and that could encourage it to just rush because they're a bit confused. They don't really understand what's going on. Am I on the right track there? You absolutely are, and it's because anything that will contribute to fear will result in an unknown situation. And as we already know, as horse people have already heard a million, a million times from everybody, I don't actually don't agree with this statement, but anyway, the lawyers make it a lot. That is that horses are predictable. I don't agree with that. I think if horses are unpredictable, therefore their unpredictability makes them predictable in some sense anyway. But to be to be uh, more th- uh, more certain of what the outcomes are, if horses were that unpredictable, none of us would get insurance for this because yes. some horses just might spontaneously explode, for example. That's not mm. true. Anyway, um, I-, I won't split his, but what I'm really saying is, is that the predictability of a horse increases exponentially, in my opinion, the further down the training road it goes. And the, the training road is actually then always linked to the previous step. And so that means that everything that we do with the horse is contingent upon our ability to be able to train the basic aids. And as you would have heard, and I've heard a million and one times from people and say, Oh, well, it really, it really pays to go over the basics. And I said, oh, I always say, for goodness sake, you're on a horse. It's like, if you don't <laughs> check these things, things will go wrong. I yep. presume they'll be right, I presume they'll be wrong. Of course I would check it. That's why I'm still alive today. And I'm, I'm quite sarcastic about it because I think people's welfare is important. Mm. Um, you know, people's right of safety. And look, as you and I know, and we've discussed many, many times in the past that a horse's reactions are not just going to be contingent upon your training, but they are also linked to things like circumstance or um, all the effects that can happen. So that means that a horse can do erratic things, for example, shy or all of a sudden balk or all of a sudden um, do run or whatever um, he or she might do. And that's because the context is not... Context will have an effect, but the one thing that we do all know is the more trained the horse, I've got the hiccups, more trained the horse, the more protected from contextual change it is. In other words, it is able to withstand contextual change more 
and greater degrees of contextual change mm-hmm. with greater training than if it didn't. Okay, okay. Just going back over that too, you know, all the, all the basic systems have to work. You've talked about the stop, the go, the sideways, the self-carriage. Mm. If that's all there in the first place, there's less chance then that the horse is going to get worried and start rushing their jumps. And is it generally just the last three strides that they rush, you know, the last couple of strides? Yes, generally the last three and then the first three afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. So it can be contagious to the point where it's not only infected the approach but also the departure zone. And to some degree maybe the vascular as well and you'll see some horses really like to lash out in the air. Yep. Look, I don't get too worried about if they lash out in the air as long as they don't really change their canter length mm-hmm. and, and, and tempo. Uh, on the approach of the departure, um, in the air, if they do that, the rider should be in a good, clear two-point, facilitating um, the horse's extended length with um, following contact with his, with their arms mostly. And we were talking about that before. I think riders tend to try and do it with their bodies. I think you should do it with your arms and try and keep your body still. Okay. Look at the world-class show jumpers. You can nearly balance a glass of red wine on their helmets. They're pretty darn still, but their arms are generally working a whole lot more than any other part of their body. Um, so really making sure that the approach and the departure phases are pretty consistent and, and, and then I'm much closer to being able to be in self-carriage. So I'll just be on a normal contact and um, the horse will then be uh, quite comfortable with all the cues given. And so it also means with this head horse. We've got two things at work here and you've probably had jumping lessons that. Uh, where the coaches said to you, and I certainly have had lessons where the coaches try to encourage you to see a distance. And that's a pretty mm. hard time. Mm. That's a very hard time. I don't know how many riders you can see beyond three strides. Mm. Yep. Um, you know, yep. great work if you can see five. Uh, you're pushing it. Most people can see two clearly, clearly. They're pretty established. But I think, you know, once you ride FDI, you start to lock onto three strides, which is fine, and I don't have a problem with that, but... Really, it means I also want the horse to be able to self-adjust as well. Yes. For example, you and I, when we free jump a horse, we don't actually tell the horse what profile to go in. We mm. don't tell him when to shorten. We don't tell him when to lengthen. And yet he hardly knocks down any rail. Yep. And yet it all goes so badly when we ride it. Well, yep. what are we doing wrong? So mm. That's yep. where I'm going with this whole conversation. We are really should be just facilitators, really quite carefully considered facilitators of a horse jumping that's sat on the basis of good training. Yeah, yeah. And I know within your training, usually you ask for, you know, one or two repetitions, then a short break. Praise the horse. You know, the horse has done well. You don't just keep going again, 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 and then um, until the horse gets it wrong, you you know, a couple of repetitions and then they're right, give it a break. Yeah. Exactly. I'll just stand on that, Glennis, because Mm. I'm not doing that just for, I'm doing it primarily for the horses because we don't, the horse has now become quite calm. That's why I've given him a break. He's just done three or four jumps in a row and I've given him That's marvellous. Come over here and we'll have a bit of a talk. So then I talk to the rider and I leave, and the horses always stand. They always stand. They never fidget. They Mm. never do anything. They just say no. Yeah, yeah. So I'm giving. Horses body break, but I'm also giving his brain a break. Yep. But then, um, while I'm doing that, I'm also working on the rider's brain and saying, yes. "You know why that was really good is because when you were there, you did this and you did that, and you released the pressure really through the right time." And I'm really praising the rider for the fantastic effort that they did, 
how much difference have we made? I'm really, you know, driving that because I need them to be so over the moon with this ride that they are chasing that ride for the rest of their life. Yes. I want them to go away from that lesson mm-hmm. knowing full well that they've got a very clear plan of what they're chasing, in what order, what problem to expect, what to do about it, so then they can have this ride again. Because this ride will not come back automatically. And mm. I keep saying that. Mm. This ride will go badly tomorrow. So you need to do exactly what we did today, but without me there. That's why I need to ask you this question. Okay, okay. Now, say you've had the rider, they've come in, they've had a great lesson, you know, the horse has shown improvement, the rider's got the idea. How soon then should you book a follow-up lesson for that same horse rider and the same tasks? In the world, I would do it within three days. I would probably okay. give the horse a day off. Yeah, especially yep. a young horse, it's a bit scared and a bit traumatic. Yep. And then on the third day, on the third, sorry, uh, so I'll go to the lesson on Monday and then I did another one on the Wednesday on the Thursday. Then I would turn the lesson back a little bit, go back over the task, and be mostly a dressage lesson, but they'd be in their jumping saddle and mm-hmm. they'd be doing exactly the same manoeuvres they'd be doing in the jumping arena. In fact, would be in the jumping arena doing dressage manoeuvres around the jumps in their jumping which is what I encourage everybody to do. Like, dressage is not for dressage saddles. Dressage is for every day you ride. It doesn't matter yeah. what saddle you're in. Yeah. Because dressage is about the execution and the availability of cues and manoeuvres that you can do anywhere and everywhere. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's good. I think you've sort of covered quite a lot there. And I think that three days, it's important for people that's not just a – come back in a week's time because there's certain times where you need a little bit more just intensive to make sure people are on the right track and to make sure the horses are on the right track. Otherwise, they can go from one week to the next. They can improve and then go back downhill. You've got to sort of start again. That's exactly right, Glennis. That's probably a better thing than what I said. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you I usually agree. explain yeah. it pretty well. <laughs> so, um, you know, getting back there, what the honest there really what my point is. You know, mm-hmm. I'm still a little warm. I don't want them to go completely cold and then not do anything. Yep. I would really like to come back and then do it again because if the, the other thing about doing it three, three, you know, three or four days apart is that it means that then you can see how available the resistances of, of the horse are. Mm-hmm. In other words, if he comes back in and you can tell straight away, oh, wow, that canvas himself can straight away and you are good to go, come around the corner, you're on the left side, pop over that little cross trial, pop over that little ox for me and remember what we said. So these are the, these are the things you have to do them where. In fact, I probably won't tell them that. On the second day, I'll say, okay, now you decide to me, what is the, what is the tempo that you want? And we haven't talked about that. What is the tempo you want? When are you going to do what the horse? What do you expect? What makes the pressure go away? And how are you going to help him get out and jump? And I want the whole story, and they've got to tell it to me. And they're, they're, they're always able to do that. So it just means that then I can get the rider to vocalise what the commands are to the horse. Yep. And then I can also get them to explain to themselves what their body has to do for the horse. Okay. We've covered so much here, John, I think that if anyone's got a horse that does rush their jumps, whether they're a coach that's teaching someone, someone that's got a, a horse that rushes their jumps, I think you've covered quite a lot there. But, John, if they need to contact you, what's the best way? They can go to horsechats.com and search for John or, and your contact details are on the bottom of every page. But do you want to say your, your email, yep. your contact details now, the best way? Yep. Mm. Okay. 
No worries. Um, my, I can use my normal email address when I say it's normal email. I've got a couple of emails, but I just usually give out the one. It's johnamclean at gmail.com, J-O-N-N-A-M-C-L-E-A-N at gmail.com. Um, or you can contact me um, the other way of contact. That's probably the easiest way. And I have a train Facebook page as well, so um, you can have a look at that. And um, leave a message on there, which lots of people do, or you can send it to me via email, I don't mind. Perfect. All right. So if you're thinking about, um, you know, in particular about teaching, you know, teaching horses that rush their jumps and sorting out that problem, or if you've heard of any others, if you've got other problems with horses, I would urge you to go back, listen to some of John's chats. And I think by the time you hear a few chats, you just go, you know, this guy's got such a logical, progressive system of training horses He's going to help me even if the problem hasn't been covered yet. So um, I'd urge you to go back and listen to all his chats as well. So, Jonna, thank you <laughs> again. I think um, each time you come up, and I know that we've talked about horses that rush their jumps, and next time we're going to be talking about horses that refuse or run out of their jumps, and I'm sure there'll be lots of yeah. insights there as well. So thank you, and I look forward to it. No worries, Glennis. Thank you very much for taking the time and um, I guess we're all going to have more time to be able to do more of these chats and look more people. <laughs> we so quite possibly are. Yes, okay. Talk to you later, Jonna. Bye. Thank you, bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 